welcome to my podcast, John Scott Lawton's English, you know. In this episode, I interview Robin Pardo Roques, head of modern foreign languages in a secondary school in Derbyshire. We discuss his chance meeting in a lift, an elevator, that led to a life abroad and a career teaching languages. Robin talks about how international exchanges, particularly the Erasmus programme, led to adventures in football and culture, but also in teaching and in learning European languages before re returning to the UK, to the United Kingdom, to pursue a career in language teaching. Robin talks about the politics and the people that have lined his path to teaching. A Master's in Arts in Education, a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish with Italian, and a CELTA teaching qualification all of which have given him a love and an interest in languages, both in teaching them and in learning them. We hope you enjoy the podcast as we discuss all things football, European, but don't be put off by that. It isn't just football. It's about learning language in context and what's important in terms of practice, practice and practice when wanting to use productive speech in a communication sense. So, Robin, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. I'm really grateful. I know you've been agitating for some time to be heard, and here we are. Here's your chance to uh, be interviewed and, and tell me a lot about your very colourful and interesting um, teaching career. And can you take me right back to when you said there was a chance meeting in a lift? Uh, or as Americans would call it, an elevator in Chesterfield College. And that's led to this wonderful career you've got as head of languages uh, in a secondary school in Derbyshire. So how did it all start? Where did you get this interest in languages from? Yeah, hi, John. Yeah, um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to you to start off with. Uh, the story began back when I was studying at college, aged 18 in Chesterfield in Derbyshire, in the UK and it just happened that I had uh, left my classroom to go to take the lift to go to another floor mm -hmm. and on entering this lift uh, there was a, a young woman in the lift who was a bit upset and a bit distressed and I, I said to her what's the problem can I help you or um, is there something you need and in her English that she had she managed to communicate that she had arrived late and she couldn't find where she was supposed to be going. And she was meeting a group of people who were involved in an international exchange between mm -hmm. uh, Chesterfield College and a school called Miguel Biada in a town called Mataró, a city called Mataró, just north of Barcelona. And um, I was able to help her get to where she needed to go and I spoke to the teachers there and I said that she seemed quite upset in the lift. What was the issue? And they said, oh, well, actually, you know, she wasn't getting on really that well in the exchange. And uh, the place where she was staying wasn't really appropriate for her. And um, so I gave my parents a quick call. And um, back then when I was 18, I was still living at home and I said to them, is there any chance we've got a spare room where um, this member of the exchange could stay? Mm -hmm. And they said, yes, of course, that shouldn't be a problem. 
they had nothing planned for the next four or five days, that wouldn't be a problem. So she ended up uh, having the spare room in our house and going to college with me in the morning and taking part in the exchange activities, which I became involved in as well. And I ended up then going on the other part of the exchange to Mataró in Barcelona. And it was the first time I'd ever visited Spain. And that came just from that chance opportunity in the lift. Fantastic. And did you speak Spanish at all at this stage? When you say you spoke to her, did you speak to her in Spanish or in English? We spoke in English at that point, but I did have some basic Spanish from having done a GCSE studies at age 16 mm-hmm. in a high school in, in England, um, which meant that I could manage numbers and basic sentences and questions and and find out the basics that I needed to do. But at that point, we I didn't realise she was Spanish and the, um, we spoke in English. And only after I got into the second day of the exchange did I start to use my Spanish. And so when did you first go to Spain with the exchange programme? So that was on the May of 2000 when I headed out to the city Mataró and we spent a week there exploring the area in Catalonia and we went around Barcelona, visited loads of places, including the New Camp Stadium, which was my mm-hmm. first visit, was which was going to come back to me later in life, but we'll yes. perhaps talk about that later. And uh, uh, had a great time and made loads of friends. And it was amazing how coming from these two towns so far apart in different countries, everyone got on so well, everyone found things in common, ways to communicate and you know, it really broadened my horizons and sort of blew my mind in a way, really, when I realised that, you know, this was a possibility. This was something that you could do as a young person, travel and make connections. Mm-hmm. And so did you get into teaching English as a foreign language or were you interested in teaching Spanish? Talk me through your kind of language learning journey. Right, so after that exchange, um, the fire had been lit for Spanish, really. And what happened was is that I went back several times, stayed with a family in this town in in Mataró and got involved in learning the language. Um, A friend and I managed to raise enough money in England to go to Barcelona to study the language. And all of that led to doing a qualification, a degree at university in Nottingham in England. And part of that degree was teaching English uh, to foreign people, to foreign students, uh, as well as learning Spanish and later picking up Italian. Mm -hmm. So you would be teaching English uh, for academic purposes, supporting students, perhaps undergraduate and possibly postgraduate at Nottingham Trent University to aid them with their subjects? Absolutely. Um, On an informal level, you had what's called intercambios or exchanges where you would meet for a coffee and you'd do uh, 45 minutes of English speaking and then 45 minutes of 
Spanish or Italian speaking. And then there was the uh, classes that I did on a more official level as a, a student teacher, um, whereas an undergraduate, you would meet with uh, uh, people who come from abroad who needed some academic language, some practice, mm -hmm. perhaps with the vocabulary or with the essay writing or with comprehension on articles that they had to read. Um, when they were coming to England and studying uh, English and in English as well. So it was yeah. on different levels, really. And that really sort of um, ignited my interest in teaching as a whole. And also this relationship with people who perhaps didn't have English as a first language, giving you some appreciation of how difficult it was to learn and to study abroad and the sensitivity to that issue, yeah? Well, absolutely. Having had the experience... Uh, and lived that situation, I knew that basically uh, you could communicate and you could um, communication was key. And then once you'd found that understanding and that joint understanding and some way of understanding each other, you could then uh, move on and uh, support with perhaps more academic language. And having had the experience myself obviously helped. Uh, so because I knew that you couldn't just give someone a, um, an extended text and say, right, can you read that, please? It was uh -huh. more about breaking it down and looking at the vocabulary, perhaps looking at key grammar points, maybe looking at um, some questions, some pieces of writing about similar topics. So yeah, that really helped me having had that understanding in the beginning of my own language learning and being in their shoes in a different country and then meeting people coming to England in the same situation. Mm -hmm. it does give you as a language teacher that kind of awareness of just how difficult it is to learn a foreign language no matter how skilled and naturally able people might think they are actually sometimes when you come to apply it in the practical context you know for study skills particularly for higher level uh, qualifications or degrees it can be particularly challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the key things that I saw when I was doing these uh, English for academic purposes classes was uh, that people would have an excellent knowledge of grammar mm -hmm. and they would have a really work well with the verbs and even with some idiomatic language. Um, but then when it came to taking that and using it in the real world that was much more challenging and that meant much more of being able to be flexible and think on your feet and practice and practice and practice because learning English in a home country and then bringing it to English to England to use English is mm -hmm. a completely different thing just as the same for me with Spanish learning it in a high school context um, then when later on I had the opportunity to go and live and study in Spain, it was completely different. And it took quite a lot of work at the beginning to get into the swing of things. Yeah, that is something people are often disappointed about, isn't it? They learn English in school and perhaps in their home country and then they travel to London and they realise, one, you don't actually need English that much to survive well in London. And two, yeah. when they do, they, they find it challenging the, what we call the productive skills, speaking and maybe writing, but definitely speaking and listening is particularly challenging in Britain um, with so many different accents. And it depends what accents people who've been exposed to 
when they've been learning English, uh, for them to be able to speak well and to be understood to communicate when they go to England. Absolutely. I'd have thought that the chances of you meeting someone who would speak what might be called the Queen's English or receive pronunciation are very low. You're more <laughs> likely to meet someone in London with uh, an English accent from anywhere across the UK, from Newcastle and Liverpool uh, down to the South Coast and Gloucester, or even from outside the UK speaking English. And yes, yes. Uh, those sort of uh, receptive skills in terms of listening become very uh, very challenging and, and thinking on your feet for the productive skill of speaking in the moment and getting the message across means you need really need that experience within the context of the country to to make that step outside of having learned English in or any language in the home country before going abroad. Take me back to Spain then, because at one point you also went to Valencia. So how did you go from Barcelona to Valencia? So after Barcelona, I began my um, degree at Nottingham Trent University. And back then, uh, pre the current political situation with Brexit, there's something called Erasmus used to exist and still does exist in Europe. And it meant that the third year of my degree was to be in the University of Valencia, in Valencia in Spain. So I flew out in September um, having found some accommodation online for the first few days when you got there. And I attended university as if I was a Spanish student. And it took my Spanish from basic communicative level to high level fluency, using it every day, reading all sorts of things. But it took months to get there, months yeah, and months of persisting. Yeah. And the only real way to do it was to immerse yourself in the language and understand that for weeks at the beginning, you're not going to understand everything. Mm -hmm. You have to keep working on it and you have to keep picking up vocabulary, making notes and so on. And it does take months. But once you get into the swing of it, you start picking it up quickly. And Valencia is a fantastic city. Music, festivals, the Fires Festival, and of course, the uh, football team there was a big part of my life there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about football then, because it's a, a shared passion we both have. I've been to two games today on a Super Sunday, which is really nice. Um, more Great. of which features on my Facebook page. Um, what about Barcelona? Because you said you were a member of the club and you were able to vote for the president. So how does that come about in Barcelona? Yes, yeah, so when I was living in Barcelona, I paid for a, a membership that's called a socio. And a socio is like um, being a, a small shareholder of the club. So you have a tiny, you own a tiny part of Barcelona. And that means whenever there's presidential elections or any big decisions within the club, everybody gets a vote. And you need to read through the portfolios of everyone who's campaigning to be president and then you choose and you make your vote and they add up the votes at the end and th they choose the the next president or you choose as a as a socio you choose the next president of barcelona so that was a really big thing and i used to go to the new camp i remember going to see some of the 
rivalries, big rivalries with Real Madrid and with Espanyol, the other team from Barcelona. And so that was a, a big part of living in Barcelona. But um, later on, moving to Valencia, I was lucky enough to coincide with the season that Valencia won the Spanish League. They won La Liga and they also won the uh, UEFA Cup, as it was called then, the European Cup. And um, that was their most successful season in the whole city of Valencia, uh, converted into one big party. And of course, that's great for a language learner because you're out and you're amongst people and you're reading the newspaper and you're keeping up to date and you want to know what's happening with the team. So you're in a situation where you're forced to learn new vocabulary, but because you want to, and it's excellent, it takes your language to the next level and it's really exciting times. Mm -hmm. Again, you, you're using, in this case, Spanish, in a very practical way, a meaningful way. Um, again, communicative competence, you're having to use it because you want to understand what the newspapers are saying. I have a similar experience in uh, Slovakia because I'm now picking up so Slovak by listening to the commentators or the, the tannoy operators in the grounds when they're announcing the team. So I'm pretty good with numbers now and names and uh, positions on the field and red and yellow cards. It's just a few more practical things I need to learn before I can fully enjoy my day out at the football. But uh, for now, I think I'm doing okay, but it is slow oh, progress. Absolutely. I agree with you. I remember times being in the new Camp or the Mestalla Stadium in Barcelona or in Valencia, and you pick things up, even what people are shouting to the referee, or which might not necessarily be the best language, but exactly. um, it's still interesting and you, you still get to learn different forms of grammar. And then you've got the songs in the stadium. And then, you like you say, you're, you want to know about the different positions. How do you say things like penalty kick, corner kicks, throw in, okay. all the basic structure for the language. And because you, you've got, you're submerged in it and, and you have that desire to really know what's going on, your language develops really quickly, much more quickly than if you were learning it in your home country. So, for example, me learning Spanish in England mm -hmm. was okay, but it really developed and moved along much more quickly once I was in Spain. And the same for people who came from outside of the UK and who I met in Nottingham University, uh, once they had spent a few months there, the language developed really quickly. They picked up loads of vocabulary, loads of grammar, lots of idiomatic language, and really became quite fluent in the space of three or four months. It's also a good way of finding a way around the country because I'm, I've started with the Bratislava, what's called C League, which is like third division. But it means that I drive to all these places. Um, most of them are small towns on the edge of Bratislava. And it, it's just a really good, when I've spent 18 months almost in lockdown, it's now a good way of getting out uh, into different places, able to, uh, to find my way around. So it's just a, another practical advantage. Well, not only that, John, I'm sure whilst you're going around, you need to find somewhere to get something to eat, something mm -hmm. to drink. And, uh, you know, so you need to perhaps outside of the bigger cities as well. You're using more of the the language. Maybe there's less English. I don't know. But 
-hmm. you're getting to practice it in real life situations. Definitely. I would call you something of a trophy chaser, but I think it's just that your teams do particularly well because the other team you support, <laughs> of course, is your father's team, Leicester City. So tell me about what it was like to see them, first of all, win the Premier League and then to win the FA Cup. Well, um, it, I'm still in shock, to be honest with you, when I think about how big an achievement that was. Um, obviously, when you spend some time watching uh, Barcelona, the um, achievements are expected there. Valencia was amazing, but then having supported Leicester City since I was six months old when I attended my first game and seen them play probably some of the poorest football I can remember, being defeated by lower league teams in the cup competitions, being relegated down two divisions from the top division in the Premier League down through the Championship to League One and then making that return. And then in the space of a year and a half after that return, then going on to avoid relegation and then win the Premier League. And we're talking about finishing ahead of big teams like Manchester United, Liverpool, etc. And to win that, that was incredible. And I was there on the last home game and the last away game of the season when um, Claudio Ranieri was on the pitch with the Leicester City players, Jamie Vardy, Wes Morgan, to lift the trophy. And actually, he brought in, being an Italian, Ranieri brought in an opera singer from Italy yes. to sing that famous Nessun Dorma song from the... Italian World Cup back in the 90s and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Andrea Bocelli, Everybody I believe. Yeah. was emotional. It was incredible. And to be honest with you, the only way I managed to get in, because I wasn't a season ticket holder, I was just a member then, mm -hmm. the only way I managed to get in was to buy a ticket from an away fan and go in the away end. But mm -hmm. once I got inside... It was full of Leicester fans and probably only half of the support were the away support, which happened to be Everton that day. But I made it. I got there. That was amazing. And then, of course, uh, last year, last season, uh, Leicester went on a cup run. So they beat lots of, of teams on the way there. And you could feel that something was happening. And then... On the day that tickets went on sale for the FA Cup final at Wembley Stadium in London, uh, I entered what's called a lottery, like um, when they draw out some names. And if you're lucky enough for your name to come out, then you get tickets. So there were, for members, there were 120 tickets available for members. And my dad and I are members because the uh, attendance was very li limited because of the COVID times. Mm -hmm. So we had these 120 tickets and I thought, well, I'll try, but there's no chance really. However, on the morning of the draw, I received an email. I was at school teaching. I checked my emails at break and both my dad and I had both received tickets for the final at Wembley. So we traveled down on the train and when something that amazing happens, 
with the tickets, you just know it's not going to be a bad day. Yeah. And we got to Wembley Stadium and, of course, it was a, a great goal by a player called Yuri Tillemans and uh, Leicester were FA Cup champions for the first time in their history. And it, that was pretty amazing. And everything in the lead-up to that final and the final itself was extraordinary. And just remind me who they beat in the final. Oh, Chelsea. Chelsea, the uh, who had recently bought one of uh, Leicester's players who said he was leaving Leicester so he could win trophies. And then, unfortunately, he lost to Leicester. So that was very sad for him, but never mind. There you go. And, uh, yeah, great day. And um, unfortunate for Chelsea that they just weren't good enough on the day. <laughs> Yeah, it's a real, uh, real passion for both of us, football. And it's just one of those things that you take an interest in it and it stays with you for life. And it, in, for you, you know, supporting Leicester City, uh, and I'd seen them play in, in lower division football, never actually seen them play in the Premier League. But uh, I remember, you know, years when they were struggling, it was great to see them succeed. Um, let's just finish on that point about uh, exchanges of students moving from one country to another, because obviously the Erasmus programme was the most significant mobility program that there was to assist that. And it was very sad that as part of the Brexit negotiations, Britain determined that it didn't want to have any part of the Erasmus program, but it could well have done. It could have just said, yeah, we'll, we'll keep that, but lose everything else. So what was your reaction to that? And what do you think the, the difficulty with that is as a political decision going forward? I think that for my students who I teach now who study Spanish and go on to take Spanish at university, it's an incredibly sad situation. Something that's a very uh, useful tool for making connections and really broadening people's horizons. It changed my life, really. It made me the Spanish teacher that I am now through those experiences amongst others. And it's heartbreaking to think that because of political posturing and uh, possibly some um, arrogance in not wanting to uh, be involved in anything European, that opportunity has been snatched away from our young people who could have gone on to use that. Um, I'm aware of uh, uh, the scheme that the British government have chosen uh, to put together called the Turing scheme, but unfortunately it doesn't come anywhere near um, the advantages that Erasmus has and the positive situation that's created through the friendships and the connections that are formed. I'm still in touch now, and we're talking about 15, 16, 17 years later, I'm still in touch now with people I met in Spain on Erasmus, when I was later on in Italy as well on Erasmus and also people who came to Nottingham for the three years I was in Nottingham. And even yesterday when I was at a football match yesterday watching Leicester who happened to beat Manchester United 4-2, um, even after that game, I got messages on Facebook saying, oh, is that the stadium you took us to in 2004? And yes, they were... Erasmus students who'd been over in the UK and we'd made a trip down to watch Leicester and the other local teams in the area, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
that connection was still there, that spark and that interest. And I feel that that's something that through political situation and political posturing has uh, been snatched away from our young people at the moment. And I find that heartbreaking. I find it a very negative move and it's not something that um, really is going to have a positive impact on our young people's future. It does feel as though Britain in, in many ways is becoming isolated within the geography of Europe. Okay, we're not members of the European Union, but it's gone even further than that. And we've broken those ties with the continent that we are, whether we like it or not, geographically connected to, um, albeit with a bit of a channel in the middle and a tunnel underneath. But we've got this uh, ideological difference that some people find very challenging but equally, you know, the, the movement of people and the movement of goods is going to be the subject of a future podcast is being greatly compromised by this standoff, um, which was led by the Brexit campaign. And But it's the damage, I think, you know, to declare my position is much more deep seated. And this whole problem we've got now with the economic supply chains of goods and the movement of goods, not just people between Britain and Europe, is very severely compromised. And I'm not sure it's going to be healthy for the British economy long term. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that you've got problems with um, goods that um, people are able to get from the continent, business being able to be promoted in that way. And I'm not talking really about multinational business here. I'm talking about small businesses mm -hmm. that are going to lose out. You've got opportunities for employment and not just what you might hear in the news about HGV driver problems and so on. But I'm talking about opportunities for employment for um, young graduates who know a European language and they might want to go and live abroad. And that's that opportunities now become, well, perhaps not totally disappeared, but become very much a challenge with visas and work permits and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a very negative situation and it's something that uh, governments, politicians will need to pick up on and hopefully find a way of being more positive in their actions in the future. Difficult point to finish on, but uh, we will be picking that up in a later podcast. Robin, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for that and uh, thank you very much for your time and I hope you have a great week. Thank you very much, John. Look forward to speaking to you again in the future if there's a possibility. Take care. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.